Hey there, friends. Lisa here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I want to take a moment to tell you about two really special guys I met, TJ and Julian, co-creators of GiftPod. Out of their own personal experiences with loss and their professional technical skills, they've created an easy but beautiful way to help us capture the important moments in our lives. They help us create audio memories in the form of a private podcast. With their thoughtful guidance, they help every customer capture and share their most important memories. In the end, you get a time capsule that you, your friends, and family can return to over and over again. You can see why I love their work and why I was excited when they asked to partner with me to support this show. They love what we're doing here at Grief is a Sneaky Bitch so much that they created a special discount code just for my listeners. Visit giveagiftpod.com, and when you check out, enter GSB10. Hey, and while you're there, tell them I said hello. And as time went on, I started feeling that the raft started getting a bit stronger and bigger. And that was all the resources that I was adding into myself. All the resilience that I was kind of building over time, getting used to that pain, I suppose, but also being able to talk about the pain, finding support, being open about grief, and all those things made my raft very strong. And eventually I made it to the riverbank I don't know when or how and I always picture that my husband and my two little girls were waiting there for me and it was a very powerful image that started growing and evolving as my grief evolved so that kind of helped me that that idea that I was all alone in the middle of the river but that I had resources that were building and were kind of helping me to get through and that my family was waiting there for me. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer, and through this show and my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. In today's episode, I was joined in conversation by the warm and wise Dr. Carolina Giacobone. Carolina's grief experiences spans two continents, two cultures, and two lives, really, her personal and her professional. From Argentina to Ireland, from the loss of her mother to a miscarriage, from her role as a perinatal psychiatrist across continents, She reminds us that self-compassion and showing up in our full humanity is at the center of all of our healing. Her wisdom runs deep, and I can't wait for you to meet her. Hi, hi everyone. I'm Carolina. I'm originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina. I'm 32 years old. I am a general adult psychiatrist. I specialized in Argentina, and then I moved to Ireland to Dublin five years ago. Um, I am married. I have twin daughters. They will be two in August. 
and I am working now in the field of perinatal psychiatry. Um, I'm doing a master's in perinatal psychiatry and I'm working in the maternity hospital as well. And I'm also a CBT psychotherapist. So I have broad experience in mental health and it's what I do for a living and it's what gives me satisfaction and just love and joy. I love my work. That's from the professional point of view. Um, I'm also a writer. I published a novel and a few articles and poems. And I suppose the reason why I'm here today is because I can talk about grief from a professional point of view as a psychiatrist and from a personal point of view, um, because I suffered a number of losses that have changed the course of my life completely. So, yeah, that's me. Carolina, thank you so much for coming on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch today. I'm so looking forward to our conversation, and it's been wonderful to get to know you a little bit over these past few weeks. So I'm excited for our listeners on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch to be able to hear um, both your personal story, as you alluded to, but also, of course, the insights that you can share with us from your professional experience and also the experience, the different cultural experiences you've had working and living in Argentina and now in Ireland for these past five years. Yeah, well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. So, Carolina, what I wanted to ask you to share with us this morning is what was your earliest memory of grief as a child? And in particular, how were the adults in your life modeling what grief looked like both explicitly and implicitly? And how do you think that shaped how you showed up for yourself in your own grief experience later on as an adult? Some of the stories you're going to share with us today. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've been thinking about it a lot. I remember this very vividly, very, very clearly. I was in third class in 1996. I was eight years old and I was a great student, top of my class. And the principal came in, she barged into the classroom and she was shouting at me and I was so confused and the principal was kind of crying. So we went downstairs and she said, your mom is here to pick you up early. Something happened to your grandma. And I just couldn't make sense of anything. And I saw my mom there. She didn't say anything. We went home. She put me in my bedroom and I had no idea what was going on. The following day, my whole family arrived. We're all there. And my mom explained and my aunties explained that my grandma was very sick and that she had asked for myself and my three cousins. Uh, we are a very small family to go see her in her bedroom and to give her a hug. Um, so the four of us went there. I was eight. My two of my cousins were nine and eleven, and then the youngest was six. So we went there. We gave her a hug, and I remember that moment so well. I can remember her face, her smell, the color of the duvet in the back room, and then she was taken um, to hospital. And the following day, I was woken up by my mom at home. And she said to me, well, grandma died and she was crying 
And she explained that she had been very sick for a very long time and that she had died. And I think that that was really important, the way that she said it to me. She was very honest and very raw. She didn't say God took her or she went to heaven. Even though it was a little girl, she said she died which for me was really important that she was honest at that point, that she didn't give me any kind of mystical or spiritual explanation. And well, after that, I think my mom was the kind of person, she was really intense. She had a very strong personality. (laughs) She was a bit emotionally dysregulated at times, but she raised me alone. It was just my mom and I, I'm an only child. And I knew for many, many years that she was shielding me from her pain. I could hear her crying in her bedroom and she would never share her feelings with me um, about grief and about the loss and about my grandmother. We would never talk about her. And one day when I was 10 years old, we were in the kitchen and I looked at my mom and I said, mom, I have a hard question to ask you. And it was like she was reading my mind. And she said, is it about grandma? I said, yeah. Um, you always speak about guardian angels. And I was wondering why grandma's guardian angel couldn't save her life. And my mom started crying. And she said, well, there's so much that a guardian angel can do. And it was time for your grandma to go. And then she started, as we say in Ireland, giving out. Like she mm. started yeah saying things about my grandma how she had never been to the doctor how she hated doctors and it had been partially her fault so that moment was really intense and two years later when I was 12 and this is really interesting because I found this when my mom died and I went to her house and I gathered all of the memories that were important to me I found a box of pictures and letters that I had written to my mom I found one from when I was 12 for Mother's Day. And the latter says, Dear Mom, I know that since Grandma died, Mother's Day has been really hard for you. So I'm not going to say Happy Mother's Day to you anymore. But what I want you to know is that it's a hard day for me too. I want you to know that I miss Grandma too. So... At 12, I could tell... Oh, that is so insightful at age 12. I know. I was a really adult of my kid, I think. (laughs) Very perceptive and very intuitive. And I just wanted her to know that she wasn't alone. And I had that sense that grief had to be shared, that it was a burden that she could share with me, even at a young age. And I think that latter kind of shows how in tune I was with those feelings um so it shaped the way that I grieved my mom definitely a hundred percent because the way that I approach grief with my children is very different (laughs) I have two very young girls and my mother died a month after they were born so they were a month old they're twins And when my mother died, I died with her. A big part of me died with her. 
And I don't know if I did this on purpose or not. I think I did. But when I felt the grief waves coming, especially at the beginning, I would cry in front of the girl. I wouldn't hide my emotions. I would be very honest. And even though they were babies, I would try to explain to them what was going on. Yeah. And I think I, I I wasn't trying to overwhelm them in any way. So when it was too much, I would just go to my room or bathroom and just cry there. But I would show my tears and my pain and babies are sponges. And I just wanted to normalize that for them. Just I wanted them to know, even as babies, that their mother is a human being with normal emotions and she can cry and she can recover and that nothing's permanent and I want them to, to kind of have that insight and I did a scrapbook a digital one um, with pictures of my mom just telling her story her 57 years in this world and the story of my great-grandparents and my grandparents and just put pictures of it and just told the whole story of of my family just for them and at the end of that storybook I just said something like your grandmother it's it's dedicated to my girls obviously um your grandmother didn't want to die she didn't want to leave you she wanted to see you grow up but she couldn't death wasn't her choice um so I want you to know that um Mm. so that's something that I I've kind of kept for them and they will be able to read it when they grow up or whenever they they feel like reading it they're very young now but in the future that's something that I've done for them to keep her memory alive in a way and to be able to to talk about grief openly and of her journey that's wow thank you so much for sharing that journey of how your own mother modeled grief for you and then in turn that allowed you to experience and express your grief over your mother's death in a way and carrying that on in terms of what you were teaching your girls in that in that time your grandmother's death for you was pretty unexpected although it sounds like perhaps your mom knew that she had been ill for a while yeah was the death of your mom unexpected or can you tell us a little bit about um, yeah, that process. Yeah. And, and the reason I ask that question is, yeah. I think, you know, and some of our listeners know, I've been talking lately about anticipatory grief yes. and the um, theories and ideas and practices around the ways in which we sometimes grieve prior to a death when we know it might be coming yeah. or some other kind yeah. of loss and the impact that has for many, not all people after yeah. the death or loss. So I'm just curious if that yeah, was a, at that. play with your mom. So what happened was that um, January 2018, I found out I was pregnant. I rang my mom, obviously, first person that I rang. And she said to me, oh my God, she started crying. She was so happy. And she said, it's such a shame that I can't enjoy it because I have this fever every day and I keep sweating at night. And I said, oh, my God, being a doctor, I just I knew that there was something wrong. So she had been anemic for a while and she had had all the tests 
all the scopes, all the images, everything and everything was normal. So we weren't really concerned about cancer. Turns out it was. So mm. I was getting my, I was just starting a new post in a hospital in liaison psychiatry and I got a phone call from her doctor in Argentina saying it's not looking good. And I said, okay, um, all right, I'm going to go to Argentina. So I took a flight the following day. I was eight weeks pregnant. At the time. Wow. Um, yeah, eight weeks. And the following day, so that Friday, she had a CT scan and it confirmed that she had a big bowel tumor and she had metastasis in the liver. So it was stage four cancer. So the diagnosis was a complete surprise. So she went for surgery quite quickly. The surgery failed. They couldn't remove the tumor because it was very big. And the way that the surgeon said it to me was so blunt and so heartless. He called me being an only child. I was the responsible person there. So he called me and he said, this woman is going to die. Oh the my God. Her tumor is like a watermelon. The tiniest metastasis is the size of a lemon. So yeah, he was very cruel. My family told me that I kind of passed out after that. I don't remember. Mm. But I do remember my family saying, don't tell her. When she wakes up, don't tell her. My family has this tendency of going into denial and not talking about things. And I'm the person in my family who's different. I talk about everything. I'm open about everything, especially about feelings. I'm emotional, so I'm usually kind of seen as the overly sensitive one. But I don't care because I'm the one who's honest about things. So I went into the ICU and my mom was already awake. I was hoping that she wouldn't be awake, that I would have some time to prepare. But she was awake and she said it failed, didn't it? And I said, yeah. And she asked me, am I going to die? And I said, yes. And Mm. I held her and she held me and she stroked my hair and she said, it's going to be all right. It's It's going to be all right. And I spent two days in the ICU sleeping on the floor while I was pregnant. Jeez. With her. Yeah, with her. And then I started bleeding. So I had to be seen as well. Thankfully, everything was fine with me, but she started chemo and I went to every chemo session with her, even though I had a very high risk pregnancy. I didn't care. I traveled five times from Ireland to Argentina that year, went to every chemo session, to every blood transfusion. I was there all the time. And I knew that there was a 10% chance for her to survive. And I held on to that 10%. Like in my mind, she was in that 10%. She was the strongest person I know. So in my mind, she would survive. She would make it. 
And I kept thinking, okay, she might not live long, but she might have maybe five or seven more years and she will see the girls grow up and go into primary school and then she will die, but we will have some time together. That was a picture that I had in my mind and it didn't happen. Um, so at 26 weeks, when um, I was diagnosed with a blood disorder um, due to pregnancy, I was told by my obstetrician that I couldn't travel to Argentina anymore. So I had to stay in Ireland and that was really hard. My mom had finished her first cycle of chemo and she was due to start a second one before her surgery in the liver and in the bowel. So things were looking kind of okay at that time and then everything went downhill and she saw the same surgeon who said no I'm not operating on you you're going to die so that affected my mom's mood and she got really really depressed and when my girls were born I was induced at 37 weeks when we managed to get my blood disorder um, kind of stabilized um, I was induced the babies were healthy and I rang my mom and my mom said okay I'm ready to die now and two days after that she rang me I was still in the hospital with the babies um, it was the 26th of August I'll never forget I was alone it was around 12 o'clock here in Ireland and she rang me and she said okay um, I just want to say goodbye just pray for me she she knew I wasn't religious or anything, but she meant it as a sentiment, just just to say goodbye because yeah. I'm dying tonight. And I I freaked out. I had the two babies, and I felt, oh my god, my mom is dying tonight. And I didn't sleep that night. The midwives were very good. They were really supportive. They allowed my husband to come in. And the following day, I was discharged. I saw the prenatal psychiatrist, um, and he was lovely. And then one of my babies got septic. So she was in the ICU for 10 days, one of my babies. Um, and yeah, she was fine, thankfully, after 10 days of antibiotics and treatment. And now she has this small renal problem, but she's, she's grand. She's doing well. But the day that she was discharged, I came home with a baby. My husband was there with the other baby. I was so happy. I hadn't been happy in a very long time. I noticed that something was kind of wrong with my husband. Something was off. And I said, is there anything that you want to tell me? And he said, yeah, your mom was put in palliative care. All the treatments were stopped. And I completely crumbled. My world was destroyed. So I traveled to Argentina the following week. My aunts who were taking care of my mom at that point had no idea what was going on. They had no idea my mom was dying. She was already in hospital when I when I arrived to Argentina and I went into the room. My heart was pounding. I remember that feeling so well and I saw her and I started crying because I knew that she was about to die. She looked like a corpse already. And she said, 
Oh my God, oh my love, thank you for being here. How are the girls? And we had a few days where she was conscious and then I made the decision to put her in a coma with the other doctors um, because we knew it was the end and I wanted her to give her a peaceful kind yeah. of goodbye. So I held her hand um, until she was gone. And then I came back to Ireland. And yeah, so that's how my mom went. Wow. First of all, yeah. just tell me your mom's name. Alejandra. Alejandra. Thank you so yeah. much for sharing Alejandra's life with us mm-hmm. and her legacy with Thanks. us. And for sharing this journey that you went on with her. And I'm wondering, too, you know, here you are having, you know, we often talk about, or I often talk about the fact that we need to be able to hold space in our lives for what seems like contradictory emotions. I think we live in a very binary world, right? That's like, you're either happy or sad, or you're, you know, grieving or you're joyful or et cetera. And I, right, right. We live, we just, we just like everything neat and wrapped up. And here you are which isn't real, of course, and then makes the rest of us who are feeling, conf- quote-unquote, conflicted feel crazy. Yeah, it's packed right? room off emotions. Here you are in this situation where you are having the most heartbreaking grief moment, losing your mom, the woman that raised you, you were an yeah. only child, at the very yeah. same time that you're bringing home two healthy, beautiful babies, your first children. Yeah. yeah. How did you make sense of that time I mean you were already a studied um, psychiatrist at the time so you know obviously you had already done some you know education both self-education and education around emotional life but how do you think you held those contradictory Mm -hmm. emotions during that time I was confronted with life and death all the time new life and memories of death all the time every day and I felt for the first I would say six to eight months maybe that I was the passive observer of how my girls were growing up Mm. and I know that that's a very critical period for them to bond with their mother and I feel that they bonded with their dad a lot more than they were able to bond with me during that period because I I wasn't there I was there physically but mentally I wasn't there so what I did was I tried to take it and I know that this will sound like a fictional kind of made-up phrase but it was true for me I tried to take it one moment at a time one breath at a time and I had absolutely no energy for anything so I did the bare minimum what I did what I felt was important for them so quality time over quantity I suppose so I would sing to them but because I love singing and my mom used to love singing and I would talk to them and I would play with them and obviously I would feed them I wasn't able to feed them for very long to breastfeed them Mm -hmm. because of the grief and the stress um I ran out of milk storage which was fine. I wasn't conflicted about that. I understood it was part of life. Um, but I was there for them in in the ways that I could. And when I was overwhelmed, 
like I said before, I knew that I had to take some time for myself because I needed to be whole and strong and resilient for them as well. So I took the time and my husband was a great help. You have to thank that in Ireland. It's just my husband, my girls, my cat, my dog and I. It's just the six of us. We've no one else. So we supported each other. He supported me and he took care of everything. And it was really difficult. And I saw the perinatal psychiatrist again, which for a psychiatrist is very hard. It's very hard yes. for, for any mental health professional. I can totally relate. It's weird to be on the other side. It's so weird to be on so the other side. Weird. And it's so different as well. I have to say this because it's not a doctor-patient relationship. It's more a doctor-to-doctor, human-to-human-being relationship. It's more of a friendship kind of thing. It's not as professional and a objective as it would be if it was a normal patient um but he he's a man he's a perinatal psychiatrist who's a man which is strange and I think he's the best in Ireland and probably one of the best in the world and we would just talk and talk and try to make sense of the things that were going on in my life at the time and I saw him for maybe six months and he was a massive help a massive help and he was the one who inspired me to go into perinatal psychiatry so I have to say that that I I went for help I I asked for help for support um it wasn't about a lot of people think that we psychiatrists are about medication it's not it's not all we do it's so much more we our assessments are global so we take care of the social part the emotional part the psychotherapy the medication all of that so for me having his support was really really important as a writer and someone who trained in narrative therapy i have always appreciated the power of story and metaphor to help us, well, get at that quiet, tender, sometimes wounded, and shy parts of our soul. When we come back, Carolina shares a beautiful and detailed metaphor she created for herself to see where she'd been and to imagine a path forward in the darkest days of her grief. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Yeah, we do. We do. And what I was saying before about how the prenatal psychiatrist helped me make sense of things. I'm a very creative person. So in my mind, my journey at the beginning felt like, and this was how I was describing it to him, that I was on this raft in the middle of a massive river, say the Amazon River in Brazil. And I was just there paddling on my own, just trying to get through the waves and just trying to make it to the riverbank. And as time went on, 
I started feeling that the raft started getting a bit stronger and bigger. And that was all the resources that I was adding into myself. All the resilience that I was kind of building over time, getting used to that pain, I suppose, but also being able to talk about the pain, finding support, being open about grief, and all those things made my raft very strong. And eventually I made it to the riverbank. I don't know when or how. And I always pictured that my husband and my two little girls were waiting there for me. And it was a very powerful image that started growing and evolving as my grief evolved. So that kind of helped me, that that idea that I was all alone in the middle of the river, but that I had resources that were building and were kind of helping me to get through and that my family was waiting there for me. That imagery is yeah. That imagery is so powerful. And I can imagine so many of our listeners right now are relating or at least feeling some sense of hope for many that they that yeah. that kind of possibility, that that kind of journey can can happen. Can. Yeah. And something important to highlight is that I would feel every day that I was falling off from the raft and I was about to drown in that river so we need to be honest about that absolutely it's not magical and yeah not at all and I was fighting to get on the raft again and it took all of my strength to do that and it was overwhelming and exhausting because grief is exhausting and losing a person you love so much is completely draining but I made it. I made it back to the raft. And then I made it to safe ground in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I still felt that the image kind of evolved and my family was moving forward. Like my girls were walking and my husband was there with them holding their hands. And I was kind of behind them, just soaked <laughs> and tired yeah. Yeah. and muddy. But I was there. So it kind of evolved. I just want to get that message across that the pain evolves. I always say that grief is a wound, a deep wound in your heart. And this is something that my perinatal psychiatrist asked me the first time that we met. Where does it hurt? And I put it on my chest and I said, right here. And he said, yeah, because your heart is broken. So I... I just imagine this big wound in your heart that over time you kind of learn to live with and you learn to live with that pain and you make new friends and new experiences and the pain is always there, but it transforms. You don't heal from grief, I don't think. You don't move on, you just move forward and it changes your life and then eventually in my scar so the one my former little scar and it will open because it's very fragile right (laughs) any trigger will open that wound and it will start bleeding again and that's normal as well so grief is the lifelong journey absolutely Um, i could not have said it any more eloquently thank you so much for reminding all of us that um 
the realities of it, the pain, the messiness of the journey. And also, I think to your point, the transformation, and we're not talking about it in the sort of pop psychology, personal transformation kind Mm -hmm. of way, you know, like we're not making this sound cool and fun and like you will be transformed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But I agree. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But it is a transformation that we go through and whether we're there, not because there's some desired outcome or because we're setting a path like you might do if you're going through some kind of personal transformation in another domain of your life, but we are transformed by these uh, momentous events, by these pivotal yeah, losses these in our lives. Yeah, we didn't choose. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. They also entail a lot of losses along the way. I learned that too. I learned that a lot of the people that I had known for a very long time, old friends that I've known for 20 years from secondary school, primary school, they couldn't hold my pain. They couldn't. They would fall into this cliches, which most people would do, but they wouldn't ask me, how are you? What can I do for you? I really don't know what to say, but is there something that I can do just to help you, even if they're across the Atlantic? Yeah. And I lost a lot of those friends along the way because I started seeing them under a different light you change your perspective it just gives you a new view on the world so it's a bit what we speak about about secondary losses so how you lose other people as well along the way and some of them are necessary losses because they are people who can't hold your pain because they can't hold their own pain that's what I've learned as well I think it was too overwhelming for them just to think oh god what if I lose my own parents what if I go through what she went through so I lost a lot of friends that I had a lot of respect for and that was a grief as well that was grief Absolutely. But I'm I, so glad I'm so glad you brought that up. I think it yeah. is so unspoken um, this idea that we just have the loss, the primary loss, but part of the I think part of what makes the raft feel so um, you know, small and in yeah. the face of the waves of grief is that we're constantly having more and more waves of grief when yeah. folks can't hold our pain. And it's part of why I do the work. Yeah that I do at Reimagining Grief and do the work with this podcast is I think we all have to get better at holding our own pain so that we can show up and hold space and bear witness for other people's pain for exactly the reason that you just talked about, which is we end up creating and causing other losses for people and for ourselves because not only did you lose those friends, but those friends lost you. They did. They did. And I think it was a big loss for them, even though they didn't say it. But I've always been the person in in kind of a group or friends. I was kind of the psychotherapist for everyone. And I was always there for everyone, even miles away. They would be like, oh, Carolina, you're always there for us. And they weren't there for me when I needed them the most. And I suffered another loss very recently. I had a miscarriage. Mm. And 
that I think was kind of the final stroke for um, a lot of my friends because they completely left me alone. And early baby loss is such a taboo and unspoken topic. A lot of people won't even consider that losing a baby at nine weeks is losing a child. And it's fine. In my line of work, I've seen a lot of women that lose babies or lose a pregnancy and they just feel that, okay, I just passed some tissue and that's fine. I'll just try again. But for a lot of women, like it was for me, I lost a child. And there's nothing more painful in the world than losing your mom and then a year and a half later losing a child. And my friends just left me alone with that. Completely mm. left me alone. And they said the most awful things. They didn't mean, I, I suppose, to hurt me. But if you don't know what to say, like I said before, just ask. Just ask or just listen. Just say, I don't know what to say, and but I'm here. Show up, shut up and listen is sort of my expression yeah. I say, right? If you don't know anything else, show up, shut up and listen. absolutely it's fine they don't have to know nobody knows what to say yeah it's it's new territory for all of us I just wanted them to be there to send me a message how are you doing today how I know that you must be feeling crap but just talk to me or just I'm here and the very few remaining friends that I had <laughs> I lost them with my baby loss as well so yeah it's it's really hard and I, I found a lot of women who feel the same way who feel that their loss their miscarriages or or their stillbirths are not considered important absolutely they don't have an impact on their mental health and it does and not just their mental health, but the whole family. The dad suffers as well. We go through all the physical changes and pain of the miscarriage or uh, the stillbirth, but the dad suffers as well, and the siblings and everyone in the family suffers. And we don't talk about that nearly enough. No, we really don't. And I, I, I appreciate you sharing um, that lost story with us and also pointing out and reminding us how important it is that we honor those kind of losses. Last yeah. season on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, I had a, a dear friend who had a full-term stillbirth and she spoke about the yeah. harms of both the hospital and her community yeah. who tried to minimize Average. sort of the loss of her loss. Yeah. And same with a, a young woman who was on my show who um, had a medically terminated abortion and felt yeah. grief and loss, but felt inhibited from the world around her for grieving. And I think we yeah. have to let go of this assumption that we can name grief for other people or put parameters around grief. And um, because we end up causing harm for others and we can't put ourselves in their space and loss is loss that is defined by you. And I appreciate you saying too about the loss that, that you're, your husband felt and many husbands or boyfriends the fathers of those children yeah. feel because our lives are built um around stories and any kind of loss I mean you had already started to imagine I imagine 
you know, we're going to have a child and how is she going to, she or he going to fit in in our household. And, you know, so we build stories. And then when we have these kind of um, deaths or losses or other shifts, it's the tearing apart of a manuscript is kind of the metaphor that I often use Mm -hmm. for grief. And then we're lost because we no longer have this story that is, helps us sort of operate in our lives yeah yeah yeah. and the future that we had imagined and all the plans that we had made and you lose so much when you lose a baby so early um identifying that is so important a lot of people will ignore it and a lot of people will say just move on you can try again you're really fertile just try again the stupid things people say category yeah yeah exactly Oh, I've so oh. many of them. Um, <laughs> and it's it's just not the way it works, at least for us. And I don't like generalizing like you said in grief. It's it's very unique and it's very personal, but in a way, some things are universal, and that's the reason why I love your podcast so much. Because there are things in all of our stories that you can find that are that are the same that we yeah. have in common. Some of the struggles and challenges that we face. And something that I wanted to mention as well is the, the way that the Irish society handles this difficult topic. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, Carolina offers insights on one of the themes of grief I've been exploring in my work for some time now. She helps us explore the ways cultures can help or harm us in our grief. From her own personal and professional journey from Argentina to Ireland, she makes visible the beliefs that can interfere with our own healing and that can interfere with the kind of care we are offered by professionals. As you heard me share at the top of the show, it's my mission to change the narratives of grief. Part of that work includes helping grievers start to understand that some of our suffering comes from the cultural myths and grief beliefs that permeate that permeate so deeply that they become embedded in our own thoughts and self-talk or in the ways professionals show up to offer us care. I've intentionally created safe, supportive, and educational services to meet you where you're at. They include individual sessions, group-guided meditations, workshops, seminars, and more. I promise to show up in my full humanity, and I'd be honored to help you find meaningful and practical ways to incorporate space for your grief so that you can do the important, necessary, beautiful work of living more fully each day. You can learn more about these offerings and about why I do this work by visiting reimagininggrief.com. I'd love to talk about that more, especially because you've now lived in two very probably different cultures and how you navigate it. So different. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. So Argentinians are very outspoken 
a little bit too much. <laughs> we have really that <laughs> reputation in all of Latin America because <laughs> we have an opinion about everything. And the Irish are quite the contrary. They might have an opinion, but they don't voice it. I feel like as a psychiatrist, I've noticed that this is a society with very high rates of social anxiety. Everyone keeps to themselves. They keep their friends that they've made 25 years ago. And it's really hard to make new friends. Mm -hmm. And talking about difficult things openly is just... It's it's a wrong thing. I think it might have to do with the strong Catholic heritage. And this is not a criticism to anyone who's religious. I'm just thinking just historically, I think it had to do with that. Um, The way that people were raised and educated in schools and, and they don't talk about difficult things. And you can see them blushing and just getting really flustered when you just say something that they're not prepared or say something that's a bit you know deep or intense even in my line of work with my colleagues you would think okay psychiatrists psychologists social workers occupational therapists nurses they would be prepared to talk about grief and they aren't interesting yeah I I felt really really lonely very lonely um because I couldn't find support anywhere not from my friends back in Argentina not from any colleagues here in Ireland so it's really really hard it's a society that is very organized in a way and people are very friendly but superficially friendly when things get deep it's hard for them to approach those topics. So I was labeled as a troublemaker <laughs> a few times. Interesting. In my jobs. Um, yeah, I once was told um, you need to keep your head down because you'll be labeled as the troublemaker and no one will hire you. Because um, you were expressing emotions. Yeah expressing thoughts emotions opinions and I am a professional and a specialist so I I think I have the right to give an opinion but um in a way that wasn't taken well and I wasn't used to that because in Argentina we would debate everything it didn't matter what level if you were senior or junior but we would talk about things and it was a massive change and I had to adapt to that and it was really hard I think was the hardest part to adapt to to working in Ireland just to keep my mouth shut um and it's something I don't enjoy I I like my independence and and just talking about things I think it's really important especially in mental health but also being an immigrant, it, it makes it very difficult because um, you're an Irish, even though you might sound Irish or you might look Irish, um, you're not. I, so you are a second class citizen in, in many ways. Yeah. I was told many times, well, you shouldn't complain. You moved to the first world and you chose to do that. So tons of people said that to me. You could have stayed in Argentina. Why didn't you? Why are you complaining? As if I didn't have the right to complain or to suffer because it was my choice to leave my home country. 
and there were reasons why I left it. It wasn't just something that, it wasn't a whim. It wasn't just something that came to my mind. I said, yeah, I'll just, I'll just go and leave everything behind. There were political reasons. I wasn't happy with the government. I, I wasn't happy with the way the psychiatry was being practiced back home. And we got job offers in Ireland. So we came here just very, in a very naive way, I suppose. And we were surprised. We didn't expect a lot of the things and we were alone. And when I sort of expressed that to, to people here in Ireland or to hear about people back home, they would say, well, but then why did you leave? Just come back. It doesn't work that way. So Again, it's a it's an attempt to have this binary way of thinking, right? Yeah, it's like either exactly. you chose it or not, or either you're happy or yeah. you're sad. Yeah. And it's exactly. like, no, actually it's both and. It's exactly you can have both at the same time. You can be hopeful for a good future or a better future for your family and still grieve what you've left behind and the changes that you're facing every day with people who are completely different from the people that you've known your whole your whole life so yeah yeah absolutely I think that's something that we need to talk about much more and obviously we came here as you said under good circumstances or for good reasons but there are people who come here just seeking asylum or fleeing war poverty and hunger and they're still treated in an awful way and they're still grieving, even even though they're fleeing yeah. something that was unsafe, perhaps. There, there's still a grief yeah. for your roots, for your yes. what all that you've known, even if what you've known has been hard and hardship. And again, I think we need to find grace and space and empathy for one another to I understand that even when you're leaving behind and it's a good thing that you've landed somewhere safe, presuming people treat you well, which we can talk about next, which isn't happening for many people. The same thing is happening in this country as you, as you know, in the U S but I think we, we don't, we try to um, overly simplify people's stories in that way, you know, and sort of like, well, you made it out of that place. So you don't have a, I heard you say you don't have the right to complain, which I think is, that's how we pathologize people's emotions. And I think we have to stop even for ourselves, say, I don't mean to complain. Like I want all of us to hold ourselves accountable to not say that as much, especially because we have this gratitude, happiness focused culture, which is, it's not complaining. It's, it's acknowledging the emotions and the grief that you have. That's very different than complaining. You can do that while also building a future or trying to make things better for yourself and your family. It doesn't have to be one thing or another. It can be many things at the same time. But I think people simplify your stories in their minds so that they make sense to them. So that it's easier for them to process. And And then we get hooked into that. We get hooked into that ourselves. So we try to simplify our own stories and then we don't. Yeah, you're dragged into it. Then, yeah, yeah, if you don't have self-compassion and insight and if you don't validate your own emotions yourself, then you, you really get dragged into that. And you start thinking and second guessing yourself, well, maybe I shouldn't be complaining. Maybe I should be happy. And that's not the way it works. 
for any human being. As we begin to close out our conversation today, I asked Carolina to share how her own personal experiences of grief and loss show up in her work as a perinatal psychiatrist and how her approach is or isn't impacting her colleagues and her patients. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I I think that what I bring to my practice is humanity. I I always tell my patients this is a human being to human being relationship. Just call me Carolina. We are just two human beings and I happen to be on this side and you happen to be on the other side. And I'm just here to help you journey through your difficulties and to try to make you feel better. But we are working together. So it's empowering the person. It's validating how they feel. And I get this comment all the time from patients. Are you sure you're a psychiatrist? Are you sure you're not a psychologist? Because <laughs> psychiatrists are so cold. And yeah, I know I'm different. And sometimes I, I worked in very deprived areas of Dublin. And I would work with a lot of immigrants. And one of the first things that I would say is hi I'm Carolina I'm one of the doctors I'm from Argentina because they would see me and they would or, or listen to me and they would think I was Irish and I would say no I'm from Argentina and that would immediately just change the setting for them oh right so she comes from South America so she knows she's an immigrant she comes from an impoverished country she she knows yeah so we want to see ourselves that. reflected in our in each other, right? And that's a really powerful um, equalizer for us, especially when we're being vulnerable and seeking help. Absolutely. I was just going to say that when you're in a position where you are asking for help and sometimes doctors, most of the times, doctors are seen as authority figures and just someone who's unreachable and who's perfect. And people are afraid and they don't have to be they come to us because we happen to have some knowledge and experience that might help them so we need to humanize that and I think that's what I try to bring to my practice and I've had lots of students with me which um, I think I feel really lucky for that and that I was able to teach and have students also observe in me and I practice and all the students say the same thing. Wow, the way that you practice psychiatry is so different from the rest <laughs> of the people. And I take that as a compliment. Absolutely, I, absolutely. Yeah, because I know that I, I do it from my heart. Obviously, my brain is there. Obviously, because I need it to work. But my heart is there. Even yeah. when it's a, a very severe patient with a severe mental illness and they might be having hallucinations or delusions and I might not be able to fully understand what they're going through, still my heart is there with them and their family. And I take everyone into account. Um, so I really get involved in the care of my patient, um, which is exhausting. It is exhausting. So I was going to ask you, you know, one of the yeah. things that is interesting in this, 
in being in a quote unquote helping profession at also mm-hmm. having our own personal experiences. And I experience this a lot being doing the work I do with grief and empathy, but yeah. then having my own grief experiences is yeah. how do you show up with your full humanity um, to yeah. be a bear witness to people's experiences and to offer support and also offer that same thing to yourself. So how do you also, by the way, you're also a parent of young twins and, you know, yeah. just doing a few other things in your life. So how do you, how do you navigate <laughs> that? On my plate. You have a little bit on your plate, I guess. Yeah. How do you navigate um, sort of showing up empathetically and showing up in service of others and sort of refilling your own tank? Thank uh, last year, I went back to work too soon. Mm. I don't know. I, 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 I'm not the kind of person who would regret decisions because we make the decisions that we make at the time because we think it's the best for everyone. At least I do. So, but now looking back, I went back when my girls were seven months old and I would find myself working, 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 and then just getting home and crying for hours. Mm-hmm. And then towards the end of the year, it would happen during the day that I would have to go to the bathroom and just cry there for a little while. Um, so it was emotionally draining and it was taking a toll on me. So when I went into perinatal psychiatry, which is such a wonderful and beautiful field, I found so many women who had lost their parents just a month or two after they had had their babies. And it was the exact, well, not the exact same experience, but a similar experience to what I had experienced. And it helped me so much. Because I am the kind of psychiatrist that I would share parts of my story when when I think it's it's of value. Right, right, right. So I would say that to them. Yeah, I completely understand where you're coming from. I I lived, yeah, yeah, the same thing. I went something through something similar. If if that's of any help to you, um, I can share a little bit of my story. And patients are so grateful for that just to have someone who understands on different levels. And normalizes it. And normalizes it, yeah. Like, I'm a psychiatrist, and yeah, I went through the same thing that you did. So we can talk about it. And this is a safe space. I I always want them to feel safe and to feel that they can tell me anything, even if it's, it's something really deep or intense. It's a, it's a place where we can talk and myself just showing who I am and part of my story that helps with the connection and the rapport with the patients so much, especially women who just had babies or who are pregnant and are going through a very, very critical time in their lives. So yeah. grief has helped me connect with a lot of them. So yeah. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful. It sounds strange to be grateful. I totally get it. I mean, as we talked about earlier, grief transforms us. And in some ways, it's not that that we wouldn't have our loved one back if we could. Of course we would. But I do think for many people somewhere along their grief journey, they start to recognize the um, ways in which that transformation actually offers something new and beautiful in the world in our lives. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah, and how we can give back 
from from everything exactly. that we've learned. Yeah. And in that way, I think we're carrying our persons forward with us. Yeah. You know, I think. Yes, absolutely. I agree. I have one kind of maybe closing question for our conversation today, although I feel like we could yeah. be chatting for hours about this topic that we're both so <laughs> yeah. passionate about. But one of the things I ask, particularly my guests, I had a pediatric palliative care social worker on my mm-hmm. um, yeah. on the show mm-hmm. last season, Rachel Carnahan Mesker. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I asked her that I'd love to ask you, which is, as you continue on in your practice in perinatal psychiatry, is mm-hmm. there a new frontier or a new idea that you are interested in exploring in terms of um, the wellness of your patients and how you're thinking maybe differently? Um, Is there something that you're curious about these days? Yes, I've always been very curious and very passionate about breaking the stigma around mental illness and opening up the conversation around mental health. I'm a huge advocate for mental health and something that I would really like to explore would be education for pregnant women and women who've had miscarriages or stillbirth or women who are planning to have a family education around perinatal mental health, Mm. just for them to know that it exists, that we have services dedicated to them that we are there for them because you would have your six-week checkup with your obstetrician and nobody will ask you, hey, so how are you feeling? How's your mood? I know that you're not sleeping well, but have you noticed anything different? So I think that in the antenatal classes or in whatever chance that we get, we need to to sort of instill this idea that mental health is just as important as physical health. And mental health is oftentimes, well, all of the time, usually ignored or just not considered as important as the physical part. And for pregnant women and women who had just babies or, or just lost a baby, it's just so important for them to know that they do have a space where they can talk about these things or want or they can receive treatment if they need to. So I think that education and prevention would be the area that I would like to explore in, in yeah. my field. That's beautiful. And I think the people of Dublin are so lucky to have you there practicing yes, you. and your students to be exploring this new way of humanizing and seeing the whole person. I think often... Um, in the medical community, and this was my experience um, with yeah. the misdiagnosis of my husband, which is, I think people yeah. generally speaking, I'm going to make a generalization mm-hmm. here in the medical community, show up and see their mm-hmm. patients in the exact location of their body yeah. that is their yeah. specialty, right? And we don't see that we are whole selves. And so I think <laughs> the gift and the beauty about what you were talking about in terms of how you are going to transform your own practice and and potentially and shape the practices of those who study under you is going to be really remarkable and in a really important shift to see wellness in a in a different way yeah no I appreciate that in a global way thank you thank you so much I'll try I'll try 
I believe in you and we'll, we'll check back in for sure. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Carolina, for taking the time to share the thank story, you. uh, your stories, your profession, your experience. I'm really excited to continue to connect with you and learn from you. If people want to follow the, the work that you do, that I know you share on social media, some yeah. of that education and those ideas, can you tell folks mm-hmm. where they can find you? Yeah, so I have an Instagram page, which is perinatal.psychiatry, and it's open, so you can see all the information there on mental health, maternal mental health, infant mental health, grief, baby loss, everything that we spoke about today. Um, There's a lot of resources there and a lot of people would also send me private messages and tell me their stories and some people would like me to share their stories and I do that as well or people are looking for resources to find services close to their area so I help them find resources where they live. So yeah, it's perinatal.psychiatry so you can find me there and if you're interested in reading my novel which is fiction but it's about mental health it's called losing the sky with an e at the end um so yeah that's me that's wonderful well thank you so much for taking the time to share openly and honestly and vulnerably with us well my friends we've come to close on another authentic insightful meaningful conversation on this show i so appreciate carolina's vulnerability her candor, and her insight. And I imagine you do too. Oh, and just one more thing. Whether you're a longtime listener of the show or this is your first episode, I have a favor to ask you. Head over to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who might just need it most. I want to thank Gile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music once again for today's show. Thanks again for listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.